You know, for every awe-inspiring testimony of one seemingly impossible prayer brought to beautiful closure by God's miraculous intervention, there seems to be a mirrored narrative with a different ending. Confronted with the impossible, with despair, or with circumstances in life, people pray. They petition and plead. They cry out. They intercede. And they don't get the job. Or the cancer spreads anyway. Or the divorce goes through. Or the mother miscarries. Or the dream collapses. The relationship dies. And these prayers are not always random, desperate streams of consciousness in the moment. Often God's kids pray in Jesus' name, so to speak, in keeping with the character and the will of God with tremendous faith, and the prayer goes unanswered. And in a story so familiar it borders on cliché, often confusion sets in. Confusion spawns doubt, and doubt incubates despair, and empathy mutates and devolves into apathy, and apathy hardens, becoming antipathy. And where hope once lived, now sits a cold sliver of cynicism and distrust. Because, and let us all acknowledge this together, many prayers are not answered. Many people are not healed, many are not restored, many are not granted provision. You know this, and I know this. And faced with this problem, many have steeled themselves against further investigation and just figure we should leave it alone. Who are we to question God? Some have offered flippant, I would argue mistaken, and even destructive platitudes, things like God knows what he's doing and God is in control. And others just despair. What's the point? Why pray at all? Still others sort of settle comfortably or uncomfortably into the confusion, yet faithful, but in want of answers. What happened? Did I do something wrong? Did someone else do something wrong? Was this a decided no from God or was it something else altogether? So to get at the answer, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 14. To begin this evening, I want us to predictably turn our attention toward the words of Jesus himself. And as you turn there... See, it's, it's slowly becoming funny. There's a running gag about, Hey, Ella! How you doing? Peter, welcome home. I know I've heard a bit about it while you were gone, but overall, what was your rating on your trip to China? Good. Yeah? Wow. Detailed. It's Chinese, yeah. For more on China and its culture, talk to Peter afterward. He was there for quite a spell. You guys there? John chapter 14? Yep, great. Let's read this from Jesus himself beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, honestly, without any theological nuance or special qualification whatsoever, do these words from Jesus seem to match your experience in life? It's okay to say no. We're going somewhere with this. I think probably all of us would say no. Now let's read another. Turn over to just the next chapter, John 15. John 15, uh, let's read verse 7. This is from Jesus again. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Skip down to verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. One more, just to overmake the point. Turn to the next chapter, 16, 
And let's read ver, uh, beginning in verse 23. Yeah, John 16, 23. Jesus says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Now, we've taken all five of these examples of Jesus' insistence on the results of prayer from just two chapters of one gospel. Five times, Jesus assures his disciples of what he words elsewhere as, if you ask, you will receive, or if you knock, the door will be opened, and so on. But is this true? And if so, in what sense? What about the cancer that spreads anyway? What about the divorce that goes through, the mother that miscarries, the dream that collapses, the, the relationship that dies? Tonight, we're going to pose the question of squaring Jesus' confident promise of answered prayer with the reality of prayer that often seems to go altogether unanswered. Now, the arc of tonight's teaching is based on uh, Pete Gregg's book, God on Mute, uh, which I read over the last couple of weeks. It was really helpful. Pete offers from the scriptures uh, 15 reasons why prayers uh, are not answered. And we're going to use his 15 reasons as a bit of a map because honestly, this could take all night and I needed to start somewhere. So I believe it's a very helpful tour through some very broad strokes. We'll deviate, do some of our own stuff, um, all of it from the scriptures itself. Of course, there's no way of getting to everything this evening, so bear with me. This book is just a helpful resource and a complicated discussion, if you feel so inclined. Um, I, I teach a class here at Van City sometimes called The Problem of Evil that relegates uh, two days, it's like eight hours altogether to this specific question. I won't bore you with eight hours tonight, but um, we're going to do a lot of work. So we, what we want to do this evening is to just to begin to establish a paradigm for unanswered prayer, offering tools with which to understand what does and does not happen when we pray. Are you guys ready? Great. There's a good bit of uh, work to do this evening, so if you don't mind, wake up, focus, and let's try to get to it. Now, we're going to group 15 reasons for unanswered prayer into three respective categories. The first is God's world, then there's God's will, and finally, God's war. Now, the first category is God's world, meaning... In what ways has this world been designed to operate in accordance to God's governance? How does God's world work? And within the working of God's world, why are some prayers not answered? The first reason, believe it or not, is just common sense. Um, I had a tremendously difficult experience with school as an adolescent. Go figure. I, I don't like being told what to do, and I don't like homogeny. So naturally, the public school system of southeast Georgia was not terribly accommodating for someone like me. So I refused to do work that in my infinite teenage wisdom I deemed unworthy of my time and attention. It's, and it's not like I was just a lackluster student. I simply did not do the work. In fact, for one entire semester, I did no assignments whatsoever. I attended class, I sat quietly, and I did nothing. Such was my resolve. And naturally, the, uh, the resultant grades were, were quite horrible, uh, predictably so. In fact, uh, one teacher gave me a grade for attendance, and I went and asked that she remove it. Now... <laughs> Rebellious though I was, I was also, believe it or not, a young, flawed, obviously deeply immature disciple of Jesus during this time. And, and like just about any parent might be, my mom and dad were not thrilled with my approach to high school education. My mom was actually on the board of education, was a teacher for like 35 years, she didn't like it at all. Now, <laughs> I remember one night before report cards were issued that suddenly 
uh, I became aware of this exercise that I had carried out, and I was terribly panicked by my little display of the will, and uh, I began to pray for good grades. <laughs> this is what we in the business call a nonsense prayer. Is God supposed to reverse the events of the previous weeks? It's like the, the Terminator approach to prayer. Send someone into the past to save me, God. Of course, many such prayers don't follow an extended period of foolishness or sinfulness. They're more like, you know, someone driving along late at night on a near-empty tank suddenly praying for a gas station. What, what exactly are you asking? That God would build a gas station or um, that he would, well, once again, a Terminator prayer, send someone back in time so that there would be a gas station now? And, you know, you might pose the question, well, is God all-powerful? Of course. But as we'll continue to argue moving forward, he's not ordinarily in the habit of reversing his own design of the mechanics that operate the world. So one reason prayers go unanswered is because they are nonsensical by nature. Now, another reason is because they are contradictory in nature. The running estimate currently places the world population at over 7 billion people. I don't know if you know that. I read that this week and I was like, holy cow, it's a lot of people. Within that generous figure, there are many who pray, uh, pray to God, to Jesus. And consequently, the odds of one prayer contradicting another at any given moment are quite high. Uh, I have a friend, Tyler, who summarizes the problem thusly. God can't make both football teams win, right? So I know some of you are it stands to reason praying that it would be sunny every day, and I'm praying against you. I pray for overcast and, and that it would be chilly and cold. And it looks like today is evidence of my winning. Um, and I just told you about my, about my resolve. <laughs> so if I can commit to no schoolwork for a semester, surely I can keep praying against sunshine, and you guys will give up before I do. Uh, because a yes to one prayer is a no to another prayer. This is from uh, Pete Gregg's book. If we believe that an infinite number of these relatively tiny events are being determined minute by minute by the explicit intervention of a micromanaging God in answer to millions of human prayers, something very disconcerting happens to our theology. Prayer stops being a powerful submission to the sovereign wisdom of God, and God himself starts to look like a cosmic version of one of those bright flashing pinball machines, frenetically flicking around train timetables and weather fronts and football scores and world markets at the behest of his creatures. Now, I realize that this begs a certain question, which is, should we cease to pray about small things? And I would argue no for several reasons. The first is that the vast majority of your life is fashioned from the small stuff. To give up prayer over the better part of your life is, I would argue, quite foolish. The second reason is that not every seemingly small prayer goes unanswered. Uh, last week, if you were here, I told a story about this wild friend of mine who prays for anything and everything and everyone all the time. He prays for the random guy on the street with a cast on his arm, and he prays for a cool breeze when he's hot. Uh, and once, uh, he and I and a group of friends were riding around this crowded event looking for this missing friend that we had who didn't have his cell phone for whatever reason. And the situation was certainly nowhere in the vicinity of life and death, but we really needed to find this dude uh, and fast to stay on schedule. So... Everyone's offering various panicked strategies of how to locate Joe. And my friend Chad says, hey, everyone, hang on. And we all fell silent. We respect this guy quite a bit. And he just starts praying, Jesus, we really need to find Joe right away. Can you please bring him out of this crowd? It's like a crowd all around this van at this crowded event. And an instant after he says amen, Joe steps out in front of the van. Now, was that circumstantial or random or a direct answer to prayer? 
I don't know, but why not pray? Why not pray for something like this? And this brings me to my third and final argument in favor of praying for the small things. Now, some of us saw this miraculous connection with uh, Joe as a circumstantial thing. Like, it probably was random, but that was pretty cool. But Chad, the gentleman who prayed for it, saw it as a gift from God. And he lives that way, grateful, all the time. Later on that same trip, a group of us got roped into what became a, a six-hour, it was promised to be 30 minutes, but it was a six-hour journey through the New Zealand wilderness. A bunch of Kiwi people lied to us and thought it was funny. And by the end, we were lost and exhausted and cold and wet and freezing. And we were walking across these rolling sand dunes in the black of night, and we were complaining about how cold it was. And, oh, my gosh, we're going to get sick, you know, all that stuff. And predictably, our friend Chad, who was with us, starts praying. And just then, this deliciously warm breeze rolls across the dune and warms everyone up. And we were mad at him, you know, because he prayed, and it seemed like the prayer was answered. And some of us even so chalked it up to a fluke or were cynical by nature, whatever it might be. But... To our friend Chad, this was just one more excuse to be grateful. See, I'm grateful for miraculous provision, for incredible feats of healing, or when I hear from God's Spirit. Chad was just as grateful for a warm breeze when he was kind of cold. Praying for small things, I think, stewards in us the ability to recognize God's kindness in the smallness of life. And that, to me, is enough to keep us at it. So, we have nonsense, we have contradiction, and the third variable in unanswered prayer is quite simply the natural order. To answer certain prayers would require God to intervene in such a way as to cause detriment to us or to others or to the world, frankly. In Alan Moore's comic book series, Watchmen, Dr. Manhattan argues that miracles by their very nature are meaningless. He says, only what can happen does happen. But disciples of Jesus have traditionally held that God is capable of the miraculous. Even so, there is a certain nuance to the miraculous. C.S. Lewis put it this way. For the creation was... Oh, wait, that's not C.S. Lewis at all. Don't think for a second that C.S. Lewis wrote Hebrews. <laughs> for, <laughs> forgive me. It's fine. Abby, just take that one down and I'll read them to him. I don't want to com confuse anyone about I mean, great a, great a writer though he was. C.S. Lewis put it this way. That God can and does, on occasions, modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call mirac miracles is part of Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. Meaning, God has designed a certain intricate, beautifully complex functionality to the natural world. And yes, Jesus can, for example, calm a storm with a spoken phrase. But if God goes about issuing weather changes, for example, to everyone praying for such a thing, this, this would create atmospheric chaos around the globe. Without storms, for example, the world tropics become hotter. I don't know if you guys know anything about meteorology. I certainly don't, but I read this. Um, the Arctic becomes colder without storms, which seems like a high price to pay for wedding photos. Maybe that's just me. The next reason <laughs> that prayers often go unanswered is quite... Uh, simply due to the overall difficulty of life in God's world. This is true on a massive scale. The author of Hebrews, which is not C.S. Lewis, uh, says this about them. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that is the evil one, the Satan, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. God's world, if you know the story of the Scriptures, was designed good, but it has been thrown into chaos as a result of evil and rebellion against God's good design. More on that in just a minute. So as a result, life is hard. The author of Scriptures not only, the authors of Scripture not only assume that life is hard, by any ordinary metric, life is quite difficult. They warn many times over that life for the disciple of Jesus will be of particular difficulty. Peter, for example, writes this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus himself warns, and I quote, In this world you will face trouble. In other words, expect trouble in life, in the world. You will face it. When you encounter the inevitability of suffering, this is ordinary. And yet, modern Western peoples, millennials in particular, have come to expect a certain ease of life, and as a result, they have developed a certain level of fragility. One controversial novelist put the situation this way, it is a kind of mania, a delusion, a psychosis that we have been coddling, encouraging people to think that life should be a smooth utopia built only for them and their fragile sensibility. In essence, staying a child forever, living in a fairy tale. And listen to me, I am so deeply troubled by every crisis of faith on the heels of life not going the way that we expect it to go. And I realize I'm, I'm risking a level of perceived insensitivity here, but I believe you and I, myself absolutely included, we so often need a radical overhaul of our life expectations if we are to disciple Jesus, follow Jesus. Jesus and the early church assumed suffering in life, and yet so many of his modern disciples imagine themselves entitled to the very opposite. And when they get Jesus' promise of trouble rather than the American dream of comfort and safety and security. They buckle and bow under the unexpected weight of life. And I am in no way meaning to sound flippant or uncaring about your suffering. Your pain, I believe, matters deeply to God the Father. He does not intend or impose evil for your life just to make things difficult for you, or at all, I believe. But we must also understand that the world can be an ugly place. Life in it is hard. Discipleship to Jesus is about life to the fullest, not life to the safest, nor life to the easiest. These are entirely different concepts. Now, the fifth reason we experience prayer as unanswered is because we understand God incorrectly, frankly. Um, you know, I, I stand up here and talk about God routinely, if, you haven't, if, if you've been here uh, for more than a minute, and I think that maybe, you know, like 80% of what I say is, is dead on, I hope. I'm, I'm working on 100%, but I know full well that I'm probably wrong about some of the stuff I say. The trouble is you have no idea which is which, and you know what? I have no idea which is which. And it's an issue of doctrine, how deeply depressing it is to meet and speak with person after person after person who have relinquished faith based entirely on a mistaken premise of who God is and what God is like. I have absolutely met with many, many people who believe themselves to have rejected God, but in reality, I believe they're rejecting a mistaken notion of God. They're rejecting a God of their own design, not the God that I believe in and follow. Because 
So many of us, uh, again, back to the fragility of life in the modern world, we assume that we should be protected from any and all of life's difficulties, and when we come to believe God has failed to preserve us from suffering, we abandon ship. And I encourage us to, man, read the scriptures. In no way does Jesus promise his disciples will be spared suffering. In fact, as we've just seen, he insists that they will have trouble in the world. God does not design suffering, more on that in just a moment, but because the world is broken, we suffer. So much of our lives, it seems to me, are are built up as a wall to pad and protect us from inconvenience, um, from pain, from hardship, from displeasure, and when that dam begins to leak and when it inevitably bursts, we turn on God. Where were you? Why me? Should we pray against suffering? Absolutely. As Jesus taught, deliver us from the evil one. And these prayers, I believe, are often answered, but not always. And when suffering finds us, as it tends to do, I believe we must stand firm in two fundamental truths, that suffering is not God's desire for our lives, but he can use it to do good to us and to the world. And that brings me to the next broad category, which is God's will. Now, within this category, we pose the question, how does God govern the universe? How do the things God wants interact with the things that we want? Are they overpowered? Are they supplanted? Do they sometimes yield to God? Do they never? And let's take a brief brief caveat and parse out the four wills, I believe, that are at work in the universe. First, there is God's will. They are the things that God wants and the things that result from God's involvement in the world. And then you have human will, the things that you and I want and what results from the things that we do. Remember, there's billions of people on the planet, apparently, and they all have an active will. To quote one popular comedy film, God says to man, you can't mess with free will. Man asks, may I ask why? And God says, yes, you can. That was for you, Katie. She insisted that there be a Bruce Almighty quote in there somewhere. There's also spiritual will, what the scriptures call gods with a lowercase g or angels or demons. They have a will. They have an influence in the world. And finally, because of the freedom built into creation, there's simply the chaotic nature of circumstances or what you might call natural will. We now know from a field of science and mathematics called chaos theory that unpredictability is built into any complex system. The universe certainly qualifies as a complex system. So the idea is that the slightest variation in a simple chain of events can set off a series of complications that affects radical outcomes, and this is true in our lives. So for instance, a woman leaves for the store, then she realizes she's forgotten her coat. Having gone back to retrieve it, the phone rings. So she stops to answer it, and she talks for a minute or two. Meanwhile, a nearby ballet company is in the midst of rehearsal. Bear with me in this thought experiment. The woman, who had forgotten her coat, finally makes it outside and hails a cab. The the driver, having been nearby after stopping for a cup of coffee that morning, is there to pick her up. As they pull away, they slam on their brakes to avoid a pedestrian, rushed and inattentive because he's late for work. Nearby, the ballet company continues to rehearse. The cab moves on, but makes a quick stop to pick up a package at a nearby shop. When this first woman, the one in the cab who had forgotten her coat that morning, she goes in to retrieve the package, she discovers that it's unprepared because the shop owner had fallen ill the previous night and forgot all about the package. So she waits. Eventually, the package is prepared, the woman returns to the cab. At this point, rehearsal has concluded at the nearby ballet company, and the two dancers are making their way to the exit. On the way, one of them pauses to tie her shoe, and the other waits. 
When the two dancers finally step outside, the first walks into the street just as the cab rushes forward, colliding with the dancer, crushing her leg, ending her career forever. And if one thing had gone differently, if the woman had remembered her coat or not answered the phone, or if the cabbie had not stopped for coffee, or if the pedestrian had been on time, or if the package had been prepared, if the shoelace had been tied, that dancer would have continued to dance. This is, I think, an illustration of chaos theory in effect. And it isn't always an intricately beautiful design. Sometimes life is, I would argue, random and chaotic, and as a result, quite painful. Now, to look at this list, God's will, human will, the will of spiritual beings, and the will of nature and chaos, you may wonder which will wins out and when. How has God designed the world? This is the bigger question that we're asking. What is God like? And how does he work in the universe? So let's return to our list and unpack the second category of unanswered prayer in God's will. As simple as it may sound, some prayers are not answered because God will not force someone to do what they do not want to do. All the earliest church fathers argued that since God desires authentic relationship to give and to receive love, this love must be freely chosen. God did not create a universe full of robots that can only do what he's determined they will do. Such a universe would be entirely incapable of authentic, loving relationship. Could God force us to do whatever? Of course he could, but he doesn't. As we discussed last week, we are made painfully and beautifully free from the Bible's narrative, Genesis, Adam and Eve, Israel, the church. The story is of a people made free to love God or else to reject him. Now, please listen. Do not make the mistake of assuming that God, since God does not unilaterally control the universe, he is somehow helplessly uninvolved in it. One of my favorite theologians puts it this way, God is in charge, not in control. And this leads me to the next category, influence. Some of our prayers that confront the freedom of other people, say, for example, a parent praying that their child come to faith, some of those prayers aren't answered in a straightforward ultimate sense, but they are acting as an agent of influence in that person's life. God doesn't exercise unilateral control, but he loves to exercise influence. God is involved. So, to return to the example of a parent praying for their child to come to faith, God will, I do not believe, he will not answer that prayer by simply clobbering the child, overpowering their will, and forcing them to come to faith. But he will answer that prayer by using his spirit to urge people around this child into conversation with them, for example. Or maybe he'll begin to speak to this child by his spirit. Or maybe he'll begin to draw new people into their lives for new examples, new life experiences, and new conversations. All of this is still contingent on the obedient will of free people, even free people that follow Jesus. Do you see the difference between coercion and influence? Currently, I'm bigger and stronger than my three-year-old son. That is the situation as it stands today. I can coerce my desire to say, like, have him sit down and be still for a moment if I would like to, and it has happened. I can also work to achieve those same results via influence, which may look like, you know, asking in a way or, or with a certain disposition that I know to be largely effective historically. Even so, my son has a responsive role to play in whether or not sitting down actually takes place. We may ask God to act, and, and maybe God does 
In some cases, the prayer seems ultimately unanswered, but it isn't meaningless. It is made manifest in influence rather than coercion, and often that takes quite a spell. So God will not coerce, but he will invite and he will influence disciples of Jesus to act on his behalf. Other times, it isn't necessarily a question of how God gets things done. It's simply that he knows better. Many of you, I'm sure, know what it means to pray earnestly for something and then have that prayer go unanswered, only to later in life experience a great sense of relief that it did go unanswered. Like uh, any good father, God cares deeply about what you want and about what you need, but he also knows what's best for you and sometimes knows better than you do what you want and need. So God is not limited by the low ceiling of your imagination and your desire. Sometimes God says no to one thing in order to direct you towards something better. Other times God says no because our prayers are not in keeping with the way of Jesus. In fact, one New Testament author, James, says this, you do not have because you do not ask God. So that's one big problem. Then he goes on, or when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Remember, the goal of any apprentice of Jesus, I say all the time, is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. And prayer really is about learning to experience all of life as something shared with God. So by that metric, we as apprentices of Jesus are learning to pray in the same direction as Jesus, to concern ourselves with God's concerns, so to speak. I wonder how many of our prayers are compelled by the very worry and anxiety that Jesus asks us to lay down. Or how many of our prayers are carried on the backs of lust for excess or money or position or acclaim or more stuff, the very things that Jesus would have us renounce in the first place. And we're so busy asking that we miss that Jesus is working on addressing the very posture from which we're praying in the first place. And moreover, some prayers go unanswered because God himself would prefer to act as the answer to the prayer. So um, this is a bit of confession. I believe I've said it before. But I enjoyed this game called uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I play it with some of my friends. And I would like to drag Abby into this as well because she, she's up there doing slides. She plays. Don't let her fool you into thinking she's very cool. She plays with, with me every time. And she, she enjoys herself. Don't let her fool you. She has two characters. <laughs> She'll tell you all about them. Ask, ask her about them. <laughs> Uh, and if you know anything about this uh, very nerdy game, it goes on for hours, sometimes weeks, or even months at a time. Not unbroken, of course, but you know, like. Um, and I act as something called a DM, which just means that I make up a story and other people play their way through it. So completing said story comes with a certain amount of satisfaction. Sure, it's a lot of fun. But I would argue it pales in comparison to actually playing the thing. I love to sit at this table and watch my friends laugh and argue and wrestle over puzzles and problems and frustrate themselves over who did or do, did not tie up a woolly mammoth to a tree and why it's not there when they got back or whatever it might be. Because in that moment, we're all together. We're enjoying one another's company. We're laughing and thinking and eating and drinking. And I love the game. I, I really do. Really, it's a very specific vehicle for time together. There are times in which we are drawn into ongoing seasons of fervent prayer without answer, and the reason is because God loves our company. And it isn't because He's toying with us. He isn't being cruel. He's answering our prayers with Himself. 
If God doled out fulfilled requests with wild immediacy every single time, our relationship with Him would become like an ATM machine or like Santa Claus or like a spoiled child with Daddy's credit card. And remember, the point of prayer, as it were, is life with God, God Himself. So sure, He often gives us things we ask for, sometimes with some sense of immediacy, and it's a beautiful thing, but we get Him along the way. And sometimes that's entirely the point. And that's it. Are you guys doing all right? We're rounding the horn here. We're almost there. Stay with me. Kitty, you awake? You doing okay? Okay, she's shaking her head. That means hurry it up. All right. We're going to move through one final category before we end tonight, and then we'll all go have dinner. It'll be a blast. Stay with me. So we have God's world. We have God's will. And the final category for unanswered prayer is God's war. In our post-enlightenment, largely secular culture, we often forget or else ignore the worldview of the Scriptures, which presupposes that a spiritual war is taking place at all times. There's this strange book in the Old Testament called Daniel, and in it there's a story in which Daniel prays fervently to God for three weeks without fail, only to finally be greeted by an angel or a messenger of God, and the angel says this to Daniel, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. The messenger or the angel in the story shows up and says, hey, God heard your prayer immediately and, in fact, wanted to answer it immediately, and he sent me, but I was caught up in a battle with someone called the Prince of the Persian Kingdom, a name for some malevolent spiritual being with authority over a spiritual, uh, a specific geographical location. Now, think about how weird this is. Daniel prays. God resolves to answer, we're told, immediately, but the answer is delayed for three weeks because of interference in the spiritual realm. Many of us, I think, with a healthy paradigm for human free will, often forget to apply that paradigm consistently across the spiritual realm as well. I see it so often in particular when loved ones become sick. Uh, people immediately ask what God is up to rather than what Satan is up to. Jesus himself understood satanic power as a source of physical ailment, something he openly lamented when confronted with sickness. Uh, in his book, God at War, Greg Boyd writes this, When one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. Some prayers go unanswered because of powerful and direct satanic opposition. God says yes, but the spiritual powers of evil come against him and against us and delay or uh, diffuse a prayer. So we pray against them, the powers of evil. We stand firm and we keep at it, but we don't blame God and we don't relent. So consider this then. If part of our broken creation is inherently chaotic in the wake of autonomous wills, and infinite variables and demonic influence and circumstance and natural evil, how does God intervene? When we pray for protection or against evil forces or for healing or for those we know to come to faith in Jesus, in what way does God respond? 
So imagine for a moment uh, this analogy that I'll paint for you. There's a small house situated in the midst of a war-torn countryside uh, that has been occupied by a powerful enemy, the countryside that is. And there's a family that resides in this house uh, that's made up of the wife and the children and the grandchildren of some powerful head captain who's currently away, wrapped up in war against this invading evil enemy. Now imagine that the house uh, has in it a small radio that somehow communicates without fail uh, with a device that the captain carries on his person while he is away at war. And let's say that the family radios to the captain to inform them that they've fallen victim to an attack, that they need supplies, that they've been wounded. Now the captain hears the request and he cares tremendously for this family. And even so, he's a part of a larger battle. There are thousands of lives and variables to consider, presumably some immediate skirmish going on in that moment. So sometimes the captain meets his family's request, sometimes immediately so, sometimes a tad delayed, as was the case with Daniel and the angel. The family in the house lacks the broad perspective of the captain. So they trust that the captain cares for them, he wants to meet their needs, and he works to do so with every resource at his disposal. But it isn't possible for the captain to intervene in every single way, even in the ways that he would like to. Now I realize it's an analogy, so it breaks down. God is different than the captain, right? For one thing, God is all-powerful. So how can something be impossible for God, as it were? And I want you to think about this for a moment. Though we all know what we mean collectively when we sing something like, nothing is impossible for you, or when we say things like, um, but with God all things are possible, just as Jesus said, but these are deep truth statements. They're not necessarily metaphysical truth assertions, meaning we all agree that God cannot sin for example. Uh, God cannot be tempted, James says. God cannot violate the law of contradiction because he's the one who designed it. So God cannot make a round triangle. God cannot make a married bachelor. And similarly, God cannot sovereignly decree a cosmos that is both free and not free. If the cosmos is free, then by definition, free agents, humans and spiritual beings, are free to go this way or that way. If God intervenes in such a way that he decrees we can go this way only, then we are no longer free. So for God to respond to every prayer in keeping with his will, with what he wants, he would have to revoke freedom. And as far as we can tell from the scriptures and from our own experience, he does not do that. Irrevocability is built into the very definition of freedom. But sometimes it's not just to do with God's war on God's end, sometimes it's more to do with us. Some prayers are unanswered because we don't believe that they will be in the first place. Now please listen, because this one can be quite tricky. I am in no way suggesting that the effectiveness of your prayers is powered by some kind of faith-detecting scale, as if, as if it were the case that you have to like power it up and provide enough faith to tip the scale, and then your prayer can be answered. And if you don't get it just far enough over, oh darn, sorry, that was just a tad too little, now I won't heal your child. No, it's nothing like that whatsoever. But we do have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus had so much to say about prayer that is compelled by faith. And listen, faith isn't something you do. Faith is a gift that is grown by time with God, getting to know who he is and getting to know what he's like. I can't, for example, I can't just psych myself up to trust my wife by pure force of will. She says she's trustworthy. Ah, I got to trust her. Uh, <laughs> it is a funny image. I've been given the gift 
of trust as a result of our years together and by her displayed trustworthiness. So I can ask Abby for certain things with great faith that she will oblige me because I know her. I know what she's like. When we have little investment in our relationship with God the Father and when we pray expecting nothing at all, this can be a lifeless and futile exercise, not life with God at all. And don't be discouraged if you're new to prayer or if your relationship with God is young or underdeveloped or even immature because you can learn and God won't wait to answer your prayers until you have incredible faith, but he will draw you out of doubt and out of cynicism to teach you something better. So go with him and don't give up. So because a lack of perseverance can also inhibit prayers. We read it just before in James. You have not because you ask not, and then you give up really quickly. Some prayers simply haven't been answered yet. There could be a battle with the prince of the Persian kingdom, so to speak. I don't know what he's up to right now, but it seems like he was doing something a while ago. We could be learning something in the process. Uh, perhaps we're en route to something while we pray. In any event, the absence of immediate results is not always a no unless you've become absolutely convinced of that no. My encouragement and suggestion would be keep praying. Next, I think this is a difficult one for us to hear, but some prayers are not answered because of sustained disobedience in our lives. Take a look at a couple of texts. This one from Psalm 66. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or this from James. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The other night uh, at our Van City community at night, my son pushed another kid. You wouldn't believe it. Um, so it's a joke because he does it all the time. He had a timeout, and I went in to explain the stakes of the evening. And while, while we're doing the timeout, he, I didn't shut the door all the way so he could see through the cracked door all these other kids partying at a table and throwing food around and laughing and, you know, singing the Moana songs and stuff. And um, so naturally he wants to go join them. He can barely stand to hear what he knows is coming, which is my little mini lecture for a three-year-old. Um, but I've, I'm there to or explain to him the need to apologize or, okay, first you're going to have to apologize and you need to know what's going to happen if this behavior is repeated. In other words... We need to deal with the disobedience before I can grant his request. I want him to go play with everyone, and not just because it's easier on me. I want him to go play with everyone because I want him to enjoy himself. I want to grant his request, but we have to deal with the disobedience first. God does not withhold goodness to spite you. Oh, I really want you guys to understand that because in my experience, uh, so many of us have this weird sort of tit-for-tat retributive idea of God in our minds that when things are going poorly or not our way, we start to look for, oh, where did I mess up because God is doing this to me to punish me because I messed up. That's just not the way that God works. He's a good dad. And there are times when he knows that what we need first is repentance and forgiveness and obedience. And then we get to do the other things. And finally, this is to conclude our long list, some prayers are not answered due to issues of justice. There are times in which we have so disregarded the needs of others and our community and our city and our world that our prayers suffer as a result. And it becomes a recurring motif throughout the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament. Let me read you this dire passage from the prophet Isaiah. Or maybe there's, it's fine, I can just read it to you from here. It's, it, this is God speaking to Israel. 
Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. It's not to share your, it is, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Wow, man, Israel was intended, if you know the story, to act as an instrument of God's kindness and his justice, but instead they had become a vehicle for injustice themselves. And God tells them, hey, after you have seen and addressed the injustice in you, in your camp, and all around you, God says, then I will answer your prayers. What a sobering reminder for this room, which is, it stands to reason, is filled with a spectrum of, of wealth and resource, at least in a global standard. Participation in injustice is another way of saying disobedience. And God will often address this prior to your specific prayers. Now, to end, how do we deal with the tension between our great need for prayer and the reality of prayer that often goes unanswered? Believe me, the purpose of tonight is not to bum you out certainly isn't to handicap or infirm your prayer life. I want us to understand the stakes, and I want us to realize our great need to persevere in prayer and to think rightly about God himself. Because I am, frankly, you guys, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing these half-hearted, resigned prayers of, God, if it's your will, but if it's not, then that's okay. I, I want so badly for you and I to learn to contend with God, to learn, uh, to learn obedience and faithfulness, to learn spiritual warfare, what it means to pray against evil and the enemy, and to know and trust in God's character and His goodness when we pray. And for that, we need a paradigm for unanswered prayer. We don't need all the answers, but we need a paradigm. And when we establish that paradigm, how do we pray in the strange tension between hope and despair? And one answer, I think, is the ancient biblical practice of lament. The Old Testament features this dense collection of Hebrew poetry called the Psalms, and it essentially acts as the prayer book of the Bible. And of the 150 poems and prayers in the Psalms, two-thirds of those are lament. A while back, I asked this worship leader friend of mine, we were doing some talking about lament and a teaching here on a Sunday night, so I asked this friend of mine, hey, do you know any, I couldn't find them myself, do you know any good song recommendations, uh, worship songs, the lament that, you know, our people might know or that we can learn, and he could not name a single one. Maybe he and I are just way out of touch, that stands to reason, but we could not think of one, and I was so bothered by that that uh, uh, Eric, Eric and I, uh, set to work writing a worship record filled with songs of lament because, I mean, man, good grief, we don't have one song in popular rotation when two-thirds of the psalms in the Old Testament are lament. Let me read one of, you, one of them to you so that you know the difference between this and the type of stuff we ordinarily sing. This is from uh, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. 
my heart rejoices in your salvation, and I will sing the Lord's praise because he has been good to me. This is, again, one small example when the majority of the Psalms are like this, and some of them, frankly, are, are far more intense. The great grievance of unanswered prayer, doubt and frustration and confusion, and it's in the prayer book of the Bible. Jesus himself used this prayer book in his moment of great agony on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it means to lament. And this week's practice is about us learning to do the same thing. For any of you uh, married couples who have been through counseling at one point or another, you know that an important piece of navigating conflict is learning to clearly communicate the way that you feel in a healthy and honest way, or you probably know that if you've seen a sitcom. Uh, that doesn't always mean that your feelings are based on accurate assessments of reality. In fact, communicating them can act as the means in working out whether they are accurate or not. But the point is communicating them, not with passive aggression, not with, you know, tweets or Facebook posts, not bottling them up or building upon them a glossy veneer to appear as though everything is fine. Honest, sincere, candid communication. Because when couples don't communicate their feelings, their relationship breaks down. We know this well enough. Do you honestly believe that God is uninterested in your frustration or your confusion or your despair? Do you think that he's offended by it? That he's too good to sully his ears with your complaints. The prayer book of the Bible seems to disagree wildly. When my kids get older, when they confront suffering and life's injustice and teen angst and all that stuff, do you think that I, as their dad, would prefer that they bottle it up and power through and show some respect and make sure that they're accurate and put together before they bring that stuff to me? No, I want them to weep on my shoulder. I want them to ask why. I want them to vent all their doubts and their frustration, even and, and, and especially the ones that have to do with me, and to process that in my presence, all their distress. The point of lament is not to complain for complaining's sake. It is, like all prayer, life with God. And sometimes life is lamentation. To weep and to moan and to wail and rail against things as they are and to do it all with God. Now, I don't know where you're at tonight. Some of you are doing quite well and you haven't a thing to complain about at the moment. Others of you are in the middle of an unanswered prayer right now, tonight. But I think we all know what it means to hurt to confront an unanswered prayer. My guess is that we will all know it again and again, as we certainly all know what it means to look out on the evil in the world and say, man, this isn't right, to read heinous news update after heinous news update and say, this is not right. My hope for us as we go out into our communities and take on this practice of lament is that we would learn what it means to lament as it is done in the scriptures by the people of God, by Jesus himself, and then to stand and to pray again and again and again.